Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the jazz session. I'm Jason Crane. The jazz session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of the show is available anytime you want it at thejazzsession.com and in iTunes. There are many ways. Too many, some might say, but I'm not one of them. Many ways to stay in touch with the jazz session. You can follow me on Twitter, Jason D. Crane, Jason D. Crane, at uh, twitter.com. You can join the mailing list at thejazzsession.com. Just click on mailing list and you enter a few pieces of information. And you can join the Facebook group. If you go to Facebook and type the jazz session into the search box, you'll find the group. Uh, in terms of the last two there, the mailing list or the Facebook group, I do one or the other, but not both. And each Monday you'll get a little email in your inbox that will tell you who is on the show uh, this week and next week. And we'll also give you a few interesting anecdotes or links to other things that are happening in the jazz world. Speaking of interesting things happening in the jazz world, my guest today, Mike Reed, is behind quite a few of them. He's a, a drummer, a musician, a music presenter in the Chicago scene and uh, to hear him tell it there's a lot happening there mike's got a new album out now with his band people places and things as you'll hear in the interview it's part of a trilogy exploring uh, chicago music and musicians and here is a tune that features his quartet called vs number one My guest is Mike Reed. Uh, he and his quartet, People, Places, and Things, uh, have a new album called About Us. It's the second uh, in a trilogy. It began with an album called Proliferation and uh, is scheduled to end with another album called Stories and Negotiations. And it's my pleasure to welcome Mike to the show. Thanks for being here. Oh, thanks for having me. So I really like the, the concept of this uh, trilogy, um, which... Uh, I guess if I can kind of encapsulate it, was exploring um, Chicago jazz from the kind of 50s era and then recognizing Chicago players on this record. And it sounds like the next record will kind of 
come full circle and, and combine those things. Um, can you talk a little bit about why these concepts appealed to you? That's right. The premise was sort of laid out that way. And what happened um, is that there, I guess in Chicago, sort of as far as it's what it's known for, there's a big emphasis on its creative music scene, obviously the ACM, um, and then also things like uh, the late 90s stuff, like the Vandermarks and the Chicago Undergrounds and the Hamid Drakes and Freddie Anderson. Um, and then if you jump back, if you go into any, like, Google or search engine, you want to Google Chicago jazz, then they'll talk about stuff like the Austin High Gang and or maybe Louis Armstrong's time period in Chicago. And there's really this major important part of it that is um, not very talked about. And it's very pivotal, pivotal to really the development of, like, Chicago as a creative uh, scene, you know, like the 60s movement of the ACM and all that type of stuff and everything that came thereafter. Um, there's so many important players on the jazz, uh, in jazz history that either are from Chicago or spent a lot of formative time in Chicago. Um, and so I remember listening to an interview with Sonny Rollins. He was talking, the whole episode was sort of talking about his time in Chicago and how important it was to that. So I kind of wanted to sort of look at that because there's also this, I think generally in the jazz spectrum, there's a, a collision and sometimes, um, yeah, of sorts between more straight ahead and traditional forms of jazz and what people want to call free jazz and improvised music and creative music. And that obviously manifests itself in various ways, and you can see it in places like Chicago. But the the truth of it is that probably what, if you wanted to term jazz in a certain way and put it on for a novice, what you'd be listening to is a lot of that early 50s, uh, to mid to late, you know, early 60s style music, you know, um, that's the sort of stereotypical sound of the music. And, um, but it is, at the time it's happening, and even before that, it, you know, it's a very creative and forceful uh, event. Now, uh, that, and this is kind of like almost, in, at least in Chicago, like a major, I think, separation point. Um, obviously, it, it segues a lot of different ways across the board, you know, with Ornette and the way that Coltrane moves through the stuff. But you can, if you wanted to sort of condense it down and sort of like, you know, if, if uh, somebody wanted to look at the idea of like post-industrial uh, world and maybe focusing on as a specific city, like let's say Detroit, this would be a way to sort of say, well, what's the post-bop, um, you know, way of looking at the music and let's look at it through the lens of a, a scene and really specifically cutting it down to Chicago roughly from 1954 to 1960. So I was really interested in that as a missing link. It's also, it's so untalked about. And I think, thought that it's like, well, uh, it's so important to the development of what ha happens after that, um, yeah, it, it needed to sort of be done and by that doing that, it kind of made a lot of sense, I think, not only for me as trying to search out what uh, my own identity is, but also I think to that of like a lot of my peer group. You know, it's like you just don't come jumping out of, you know, the 
Evan Parker just didn't appear from nowhere, and neither did Muhal Richard Abrams. It's like there's a lot of stuff that comes from that, and so we don't either. So I, I, I kind of wanted to address that. And then in a little bit of a, I, I, I feel a little bit of validation when George Lewis's book, you know, mostly basically on the AACM, the first part of it really talks about this time period. Now, I didn't know this when I conceived the, the project that this was going to be like the sort of starting point for his book, you know. Um, so it kind of made me feel very, very good about how, you know, my, I guess, thesis of sorts uh, on this project. So that's kind of how that sort of started. And then the, the second record, I think, in a certain way, maybe is a little, it's not fully, I don't think everybody's really getting the full idea of it. Because in, from my vantage point, there's plenty of records out there that have attempted to do, like, say, the music of Chet Baker or the, you know, tribute to Thelonious Monk. And that was never part of this recipe. It was, you know, let's find, you know, very hard to find, very obscure musician and music, or as much as we could, and reinvent it and make it as creative as when they were doing it. You know, and if that means like, well, we're only, the only thing we're keeping from this section is the, or from this tune is the A section, you know, because that's how we would, uh, you know, or, throughout the chord changes until now, now the chord changes, you know, all this sort of maybe more modernized ideas of how to play this music um, is what we kind of wanted to do with it. And with that, the second record, which is about us, makes, you know, that the title of it, it kind of says, well, there is the past, this is what, why it sort of means something now. This, this is what we do with our music and it doesn't, uh, it's not like a tribute. It's like one flowing sort of thing. And then when we get to the last record, which will be out later in the, in the spring, it brings both of those together. So it brings the quartet, the essential group, together with uh, three figures of that time period, Julian Priester, Iris Sullivan, and, and Art Hoyle, and trying to basically negotiate those ideas doing music that's specifically newly written for them, uh, recreating music that they played on and with these different ideas that were, and maybe still aren't part of what their approach to it is, and trying to really be as creative uh, in a current way as possible, even though that some of the methods might harken back, obviously, swinging rhythms and, you know, some chord changes of sorts, but there's a lot of other things that don't at all. Um, have anything to do with that time period. And so we're trying to figure that all out. And by doing it, hopefully the, the whole series of records um, shows that it's all like a continuous living thing instead of like a tribute. The middle record that just recently came out about us was that I felt like it was also important for it to be sandwiched in the middle because obviously the first record is about another time period seen through our lens. And if we would have jumped right to the last thing, the band in itself wouldn't, I think, have as much of a personal identity. Because, you know, it's like, we'll do this third in the series, but I don't expect that to be the last thing you're going to hear from this band. It's like, no, we'll probably go and do approach other types of ideas and concepts for albums and stuff like that. So it, there needed to be a framework for an identity that was 
uh, obviously rooted in this project, but had its own imprint really early on. Not like the fourth record, you know, not the fifth record. Oh, they're going to finally start doing their own stuff. It's like, no, no, no. We're going to basically show that it's all part of, 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 this, of this idea. think that 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 narrative approach works really well and actually what you've what you've just said i think informs that even more because for example uh, one of the tunes on here um big stubby which was uh, uh, uh-huh. a, a tune written by uh, jeb bishop who plays trombone on that track um i mean sounds I, I can completely hear you know pat patrick on that record yeah. from the Sunrod band i mean it the, there and there are moments all over this record where uh, you know what came before on on proliferation which was obviously reinvented through your own lens anyway and but but where that kind of source material um i think really shines through and not as you suggested not in a in a tribute style but yeah. but really organically which sounds like it was the goal yeah and the other thing that i tried to keep you know and it's like people want to look a little closer you know of of course on the first record we were taking people's music and reinventing it and there were a few tracks there was three that I sort of put together and sort of dedicated to people. So they're mostly our arranged and composed stuff. And on the second record, there's this idea of three again, bringing three guests in and doing compositions of theirs that it's almost the same thing. So on the first record where we might have done a John, well, yeah, like a, a, a Clifford Jordan tune or something like that, on the second record, we're doing a Jeb Bishop tune, and it's on a rec- Jeb Bishop record, and we're fans of that tune, and that's why we're doing it. And we're lucky enough to be able to do it with him. Uh, so uh, there's kind of that sort of constant, like, hey, everybody, you need to check out this Chicago music. You know, uh, whether you heard that Jeff Parker record, well, here is us doing it, and you should buy the original because it's still available. So uh, there's that sort of tip of the hat, uh, you know, of our modern-day sort of... Uh, peers and, and also people who were very influenced by uh, on that second record. And, of course, then it really is like, you know, uh, that way on the, on the last record. So there's little things like that, you know, and like on the last record where there's three musicians. So there's, there's little things like that that I wanted to keep consistent. I always try and feel like 
making a a record is a little bit more than making. I mean, everybody I think thinks that way, but I really feel like it's it's a little bit like writing a book or making a movie. You know, um, you really have to I think edit and think about. Even though, like, there might be stuff that's really just not for anybody else except maybe for me or a few other people that I understand. Like, oh, that's a very, that's a clever move that you put that there, or why this is paced this way. And if nobody else gets it, that's okay. But uh, if I'm not putting that much thought into it, then there's a problem, you know. Then I don't, then I don't feel as compelled by it. That's usually what the way that I sort of work. And the other thing, too, is that usually these concepts, are laid and then the record is sort of put together. I don't put get all this music together or write music and for any of the groups that I have, uh, and especially you know, and then put a premise for a record together. The, the concept is set and then you know. So I guess it's sort of this idea of like if you were going to say, well, I'm writing this book and it's about this. I'm not sure how it's going to end yet, but I already know what the book is supposed to be about, and you kind of start working from it that way instead of. Having, I guess, a lot of people like have chapters. Here's a tune. Here's a tune. Here's a tune, and then it becomes a, a record. I, I never really liked that idea. Yeah, the three guests who are on this album, we've already mentioned two of them, uh, trombonist Jeb Bishop and guitarist Jeff Parker, and the third is saxophonist David Boykin. Uh, can you talk about uh, why you chose those three particular people uh, to feature on this album? Yeah, uh, well, uh, Jeb is, you know, I mean, he's, I think from the from the, my first encounters with him, he's really set the high level of um, for improvisers, that in the you know in the community that we deal with in Chicago, like you know, as far as his ability to work in a lot of different areas and and be a very high level like improviser from like you know obviously being able to play jazz and you know and it's free jazzness and also really hardcore improvised music and being able to stay with ideas for like you know thirty forty minute stretches without like going into a string of licks and, uh, you know, just sort of a bag of tricks. Um, so he sets this very high level, and I think everybody is, 
on their toes if he's in the project. You know, if he's around, it's like, you know, he's the kind of guy that really also, it's like if you're working on a piece, it's like he does not leave until, like, no, it has to be right. You know, and he keeps everybody sort of on, on their toes in that way. And so just his influence in that way amongst, every, like, a, a whole generation, I think, of improvisers that are very influ influenced by him, that's uh, reason enough. And, and he has, writes some really great music, too. And I think that he, uh, he's, he, I think he's recognized definitely amongst trombonists, that's for sure, around as in, one of the really great improvising trombonists around, uh, you know, the world. But, you know, I think that he doesn't, he doesn't lead as much as he should. And I think there's a little bit of a nod to, to somebody who doesn't, uh, isn't, you know, the, the Chicago sort of quintessential Chicago name when you're rolling out like a list of who the, you know, free jazz improvisers are from Chicago. Um, and then David Boykin, I played with David for years in his band, The Expanse, and we also had a, a trio that we'd play, and we'd play like three or four times a week in Chicago. Like, without, this would not even be on tour. We would play all of the time. And he was an incredibly um, large, he's a very large figure well, just physically, but also just his sound and his, his intense commitment to being independent. Uh, and, like, that means, like, how he puts his music out there, where he performs, and also being very independent on how he wants the band to sound and he wants himself to sound. You know, it can be, it was been some of the greatest moments on the bandstand and also the most embarrassing and most, you know, uh, ego-crushing moments. Um, you know, and you would you would get up there and you'd play a song for an hour and a half, just one song, you know, and uh, just the craziest workouts that you would do with him. And, and he's, yeah, the amount of encouragement that it gave to me was really important, I think, for my development. And, uh, and, and he just, he's another one. He has just books and books of his own tunes and not enough of them that are recorded. Um, and, you know, it's, uh, that's a bit of a shame. And I've been, you know, I, I still wish I'd play with him, but it's a little tricky, I think, schedules and all this type of stuff. But, uh, but he, anytime I have a chance to, you know, I, I try to. So it was really great to include him on this. And then, and then Jeff Parker is just, uh, you know, I mean, as a musician, he's a, definitely a hero of mine, but also personally, he's, I think he really kind of defines like a, personality that is able to be who, themselves but within any setting you know um, he doesn't do things like if you if he plays on a gig he doesn't bring out a different guitar because this is an R&D gig he doesn't um, you know change his sound because this is the you know a, a rock gig or a jazz gig it's like no it's Jeff all of the time that's the way he sounds and that's the way he's going to approach it and uh, that kind of goes with his personality as a human being no matter where what type of situation he's in and that's a really I think encouraging thought because I think that so many of us sort of compartmentalize ourselves and let other people compartmentalize us um, and I really kind of look up to him in that way that is really important I think uh, you know being an African-American playing jazz these days, which I think is not as, especially on a creative level, cre like 
free jazz, creative music, improvised music, that is, uh, it is not, I think, I think there's a lot that's not accepted that amongst ourselves that we need to sort of look at. And, and he, he looks at it on, on, on a variety of levels, whether he's teaching, playing in tortoise, playing, you know, an organ trio, doing freak-out duets with me, you know, whatever it is, he has a, a huge perspective on, on being, which obviously then gets expressed in his music. mentioned earlier that this the period of Chicago jazz that you drew directly from for the first record and that informs the second record was to some degree lost or at least not certainly not as well known uh, as it mm-hmm. as it should be uh, what happened to it do you think why did that why was that the case and then how did you go about uh, kind of unearthing the music and musicians that you did well I think you know, I think there's a, a few reasons. And I'm also, the, one of the things I try to do is also, obviously I talk to a lot of people trying to find out information about trying to find music and stuff like that. But I also started to try and do interviews with some of the older musicians that were around during that time period, and also some of the journalists that are still around. But, um, you know, I think there's obviously, and it's really funny, especially now that it's the beginning of the year and we just went through a few weeks and we'll probably have a few more of a year-end list. But looking at how much attention is placed on, like, New York, and I think of that in itself, it really dealt... I mean, it, I think it deals a cultural blow to many cities, you know, um, all, of it, all our country's cultural capital, especially when we're talking about jazz, is directed towards New York and this real myth um, that might have been true, but maybe as was true as Chicago, you know, from all recollections and actually from a lot of documentation, there was plenty more venues in Chicago, you know, uh, and it's also, you know, I think on a lot of ways laid waste to Philadelphia, Detroit, Cleveland, Kansas City, St. Louis, like none of those places have happening scenes, you know, and I think it's 
that definitely, I think, happened in, in at that time period. When you lose, I think, leaders amongst art, artistry, like like a Clifford Jordan, or like, I mean, yeah, I guess even this, this, when the Sun Ra Band packs up and you lose people like, you know, uh, John Gilmore and Walter Perkins, and obviously your major stars like your Herbie Hancocks and your Jack Dejanets, and the, like all of these people that are there, Chicago people, and you could go on and on and on. But when all these people just sort of are gone from the landscape, that leaves a big hole there. I mean, who is leading this? Then the the formation of new ideas. It doesn't really happen again until the ACM. You know, there there is. Yeah, there is very little going on. And then when we're talking about like a force also for mainstream progressive jazz, you know, there is like, there hasn't been anybody, I don't think, that really, uh, you know, there's been spurts, I guess, and also in the maybe 90s and early 2000s, people like Kurt Elling or stuff. I think Kurt Elling even lives in New York now. You know, and so what do you do with that? You know, I think that's a major thing, this moving of, of people away from the city. But then there's also issues within the city itself. And from what I understand, you know, the, the segregation of the unions was a major issue. The way that the city is separated is a, a major problem. It's still the problem as far as the way that you can transport yourself. It's not like New York where there's this massive um, network of subways, but it's like the city is really kind of separated. And that obviously at that time did not lead for a lot of like black musicians playing on the north side and vice versa. Um, so I think that's a huge problem that occurred. And then specifically I've heard this story uh, that was <laughs> it's pretty interesting. I haven't really seen any documentation to back it up, but apparently um, the club culture, you know, the, the many venues, every place had, had a band. And um, then there would be, like, this intense jam session culture that existed. Pretty much, it, like, everybody, it, it is, it's really well talked about. And, uh, but apparently, from what I understand, I've heard this in a few stories, but I haven't seen it written, actually, that there was an, uh, something handed down from the white union to the black union saying, hey, there's these jam sessions going on. These people are not on the contract, and you need to tell them to stop, that this can't happen anymore. And so they, you know, obviously issued this out to everybody. No more jam sessions. Unless your name is on the contract, you can't be on stage. And, of course, nobody listened. And so the head of the union went out, and he started, like, you know, basically, you know, physically removing people from the stage. And at one point, somebody wouldn't get off the stage, and he shot him. And then everybody got the message. They're like, okay, this is, this is over. This period now is done. And, and, uh, and people had to go and start doing meeting creatively, and I remember, I think, uh, Roscoe was saying one of the first, Roscoe Mitchell was saying one of the first places that he would jam was in a, uh, they would jam in an office building. And uh, then, you know, that also led to sort of like off-hour things happening at venues, which, you know, basically is the development of like Muhal's experimental band, which was not happening really during operating hours. It was a little bit, but a lot of times during non-operating hours at, at, a, at a venue. So that sort of put things in the back door um, and kind of just put the brakes on like a lot of these places. And then, of course, you know, we have the regular sort of advent of popular music and what that did, it, you know, 
I mean, the thing, all the, the other thing with Chicago, it's like it has no major industry. There are no major record labels, and you know, there's no the the critics are focused in on the coasts, mostly in New York, and they mostly operate out of that east east coast and whatnot. Um, so it's never had any of those luxuries on any type of musical front. You know, record row existed and then it went away. You know, uh, by the by the late '60s that was gone. So even as a session musician, a lot of these people who played on Impressions Records and whatnot, they, you know, their work is, is now dried up. So, you know, it's like Chicago's never had those opportunities that anybody's ever developed. And I think in, in a certain way, it really lends itself to sort of a civic idea. Well, civic is a weird way of putting it, but uh, there's an aesthetic there that is really about doing things yourself, and it's not really because it's like, well, I'm going to, you know, this attitude thing. It's like, but that's just how we do it. It's like it's always been that way. You know, I mean, even if you want to look at one a major success story like a Chess or a Delmark, it's like, yeah, those are guys are kind of, they're self-starters. They did it themselves, you know, and and that kind of goes, you know, Fred Anderson's Velvet Lounge, even like, you know, I guess Vandermark and the things that we do, in town now, like, you know, progressive labels like Thrill Jockey and whatnot and Drag City. Yeah, that's kind of just a Chicago thing. For better or for worse, it's kind of, I I think, for better, actually, these days. My only issue still, though, is that I think it should get a little bit more notice. Not only Chicago, but just, you know, any place in general that, you know, I think there's so much put on New York, it's like, come on. You know, I just can somebody acknowledge, maybe it's not even so much that there's an, a prettier girl in the room, but just that there's another girl in the room, you know? New York can still be the prettiest, but it's like, let's just at least say that there's something else going on in this world, you know? Because for my money, I think that probably the most creative scene happening right now is probably in Berlin. talk a little bit about the the current day Chicago scene and I know you're you're really involved as a presenter of music uh, as well as a performer mm-hmm. of it can you talk a little bit about your role as a presenter and and kind of your your impression of what's happening on the ground now in Chicago 
Yeah, well, I mean, I present or am involved with representing uh, maybe around 200 sets of music a year, most of which are in the jazz and sort of improvised music spectrum. Um, now, there's a, a collective called Umbrella Music, which is uh, a group of musicians and presenters, that, and we have a weekly concerts. There's three nights that we present concerts at three different venues. Wednesdays at this venue called The Hideout, Thursday at this venue called Elastic, and Sunday nights at this venue called The Hungry Brain, which is uh, a, a series that I, myself and uh, Josh Berman, who plays cornet, started 10 years ago. And uh, and that's maybe the the sort of focal point at these days for that community of people in Chicago and 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 anybody that's coming from wherever from parts of the U.S. or internationally, you know those those venues and and I think especially the the Hungry Brain has got maybe the the longest running series and also maybe the it's the sort of the heart you know it's like if you're gonna come through town, that's where you're going to see most of the musicians and or, you know, I think maybe get the most uh, real heart feeling for what, what's happening in, in the city. And then, of course, there's other opportunities and, you know, like I said, Fred Anderson's um, Velvet Lounge, which, you know, has been coming back to life after almost having gone away a few years ago. Um, great opportunities with the Cultural Center because they have a very uh, very proactive and very uh, informed uh, music programming uh, staff, small but great. And uh, so that's what's going on there. And then additionally, it's like also I'm part of the programming committee for the, the Chicago Jazz Festival, the large outdoor events, you know, um, which there's usually around 30,000 people a day, and I'm pretty much just on the programming committee for that. And then also there's other more non-jazz events that I'm involved with, booking a concert series at the city's Millennium Park that I do in, uh, in conjunction with the uh, Department of Cultural Affairs, which is mostly a pop music and rock music event. And um, and then also I have been involved with um, actually being a partner and a managing partner for the Pitchfork Music Festival, which is mostly a, an indie rock um, yeah, extravaganza of sorts. And uh, so that's, you know, that type of stuff kind of came about because originally I I needed to book shows for myself and, you know, when I was 19 and 20, and that grew into booking shows for my friends, which then grew into, hey, you know what, we maybe we should do a concert series of, you know, different jazz stuff and, you know, you uh, kind of start to get good at that part, which a lot of musicians aren't good at, the organiz organizational part, coming up with conceptual ideas of organization and, and, and promoting that, and then having to also do the work. So, you know, uh, and I got better at it. And then, you know, there's other opportunities that I think at the end of the day, anything that's also outside of the sort of jazz spectrum, always in some way, there's some underlying benefit to the larger Chicago jazz community. Um, you know, I just came to New York. I'm here for this APAP uh, convention. And a lot of the things that I'm going to be doing here is probably talking to partners that we work on that are foreign, like folks from the Netherlands and 
from Poland because we do a lot of um, artists that come over to Chicago and we uh, work with their cultural organizations and consulates to try and make sure that we have funding and try and, uh, you know, uh, figure out other opportunities. Um, and that's also paid off the other way, you know, where we've supported, especially with the Umbrella Group, supported um, artists from Chicago going abroad and playing festivals and, and, and venues and, and doing tours in, in Europe. And so um, there's always an underlying current I, I, to try to invigorate, I guess, the, the, the Chicago community. And I think I've always felt that there's, in, like, it needs to sort of be farmed. You know, it's like you want it to sort of grow, which means that there's certain things you have to do to, to, to get that to happen. And, and you want it to grow because at some point I'm not going to be the person who maybe can do all of these things but I'm still going to want to play, and I need there to be a healthy landscape in Chicago. And one of the reasons or ways to have a healthy landscape is that people from outside of Chicago think it's healthy, and they come, you know, and it also then does something that, you know, hopefully um, will stop things that happened in the past, like people leaving because they say, well, why would I leave Chicago? It's like there's plenty of places to play. There's tons of people to play with. There's lots of opportunity, and maybe it's even better because, there aren't so many damn people here that I have to worry about, you know, where I'm living and if I'm going to have a gig this week or or this month. So, um, yeah, there's that's a lot of the concern of, of of how the programming part of it really, I think, factors back into the musical playing landscape. Well, my guest is Mike Reed. He and his band People, Places, and Things have a new record called About Us out on uh, 482 Music right now. And Mike, it sounds like uh, you're you're doing some good work in Chicago, and uh, it's it sounds pretty exciting to me. I'm I'm really uh, happy to hear everything that's going on, and hope we can talk about it again in the future. And I thank you very much for uh, coming on the show today. Thanks for having me. Hopefully, uh, we'll see you out in Chicago sometime. That would be great, man. Absolutely. <laughs>
That's Mike Reed from his album About Us. I'm Jason Crane, and you've been listening to The Jazz Session, presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of the show is available for free anytime you want it on demand yet at uh, where? TheJazzSession.com, Forgotten My Own Website, and in iTunes. My thanks to the members of the Respect Sextet. They provided the theme music for the show. They are performing all over the place, uh, up and down the East Coast. I believe in Cambridge, Massachusetts, maybe. Also, I believe in Philadelphia and other cities located within easy driving distance of where you are, if you are on the East Coast, within easy driving distance of those cities. To find out whether that's true or not, visit respectsextet.com. Thanks also to Dave Vrabel, who designed the Jazz Sessions logo. This show is distributed under a Creative Commons license. You can find out more about that if you go to the About page at thejazzsession.com. Most importantly, as always, thank you so much for listening, and thanks to all of you who comment. Many of you comment on the website itself, which you can do under any show on the website. I don't know if you know that. And uh, many of you comment on Facebook or send me email. Uh, it's, it's much appreciated. I really, really do enjoy hearing uh, from all of you and your suggestions for the show, your uh, your comments, your criticisms. Uh, it all makes the show better, and it makes me happy to know that you're listening. So keep those cards and letters coming. In the meantime, or maybe even a nice place to write a letter would be at a jazz club, you can uh, support live jazz whenever and wherever it tickles your fancy, and then come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. Thank you for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye.